Well, good morning, friends. My name is Tracy Bianchi, and it is my joy to serve here at Christ Church as our pastor for adult ministry. So the team I work with is involved in small groups and men's ministry and women's ministry and all of the adult classes and events that um, you might hear about during your time here. And it is a great joy this morning to share with you God's word as it comes to us from Exodus 14. If you're new here today or maybe just forgot where we were at, we are on a multi-week journey through the book of Exodus and are making our way with the people of Israel. Uh, today, we will find ourselves at the shores of the Red Sea at the edge of what is one of the better known stories in scripture. But before we begin our time together, would you join me again in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for the gift of this space, for the voices of our choir, for the sound of trumpet, for the friends and strangers alike who are seated near us. Lord, thank you for your grace, for your presence, and for your joy. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us your word, and that as we study it, we learn new things about you. And may we be a changed people who are able to move through our lives in a different way because of your word and your grace to us. So bless us as we study now. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people together said, amen. Well, again, as I mentioned, we are traveling with the people of Israel, and they are being led by Moses. And what has happened before this moment in our text is that the people of Israel have been held captive for probably 430 years. That is the exact estimate that many scholars make. And throughout those four centuries, they lived a captive people in Egypt. They were not allowed to move or pack up and leave. They were not allowed to make their own decisions. They were slaves in an occupied territory. And some of the rulers across the centuries were benevolent and kind to them. Others were harsh masters who literally worked the Israelites to death, but they were always an enslaved people. And after a series of calamities and plagues and declarations of letting my people go, the Pharaoh of Egypt throws his hands up and finally lets them go. And if you remember, in chapter 12, there's a series of conversations that the Israelites and Moses have with Pharaoh. And finally, Pharaoh releases them for the last time. Chapter 12, verse 31 reads, During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And bless me. He asks for a blessing before he finally, after all of these back and forth moments that precede this chapter, he finally lets them go. And so we are now in the actual exodus, the namesake of this book. And thousands of Israelites are now lumbering across the Sinai Desert. And there's debate in the world of um, academia on how many people 
are traveling together. And there are good estimates on both end of a very wide range. Some say this may have been about 30,000 people all traveling together. On the other end of the spectrum, some good scholarship suggests this could have been up to 2 million people. Big span, but somewhere in the middle of this is a mass of humanity, God's people figuring out now how suddenly to move. They have been captive and enslaved for over 400 years, and now suddenly, in a hurry, it's pack up and get ready to get out. And they probably asked some of the same questions we might ask. What do we bring <laughs> How fast do we move? Where are we going? What's the plan? And for a people who've never had freedom before, this is a little clumsy to figure out. Their muscles of how to move themselves and go places have atrophied a bit. My daughter's been on crutches for a month and she was just cleared to start walking on her own again, and the muscles in the leg that she's not been able to use have atrophied, and she's sort of clumsy as she walks around. She's regaining her strength. She's figuring out how to move through the world, and this is sort of what's happening with this mass of humanity. They're lugging their lives across the desert. How do we set up camp? How do we exist together? Where do we go? Where are we walking? How much longer? Probably questions not unlike we would ask if we were in a similar situation. It's chaotic, but at least it's forward moving. And they're leaving. And they're making progress heading straight out of Egypt until suddenly God intersects the story and reroutes them. When we travel as a family, uh, somebody puts um, Google, the Google app, and somebody, um, Google Maps, and somebody puts Spotify in, and we've got all of our phones plugged into the car, and all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but um, when Google Maps tells me there's a faster way, you get that little alert that says, save 10 minutes, exit here. And everybody gets a little excited, like, ooh, take the turn, and obviously you can tell how many people were using the same app because all of a sudden everybody starts getting out of the traffic. The opposite happens. There's sort of this prompt that Moses gets, add 15 hours to your trip, exit here. Imagine yourself driving from Chicago to Denver, Colorado. It's a 16-hour straight drive on Interstate 80. I don't even think you need to turn the wheel once the entire way across the middle section of the country. And all of a sudden, you get an alert that says, add 15 hours to your trip, head on up to Minnesota, and park your car at the shore of Lake Superior. It's the equivalent to what's happening here. It made absolutely no sense that God redirected them. But that's what scripture tells us happened. And in Exodus 14, we pick up the story here. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp encamp near the sea. They are to encamp near the sea. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So the Israelites did this. They were turned from the most direct path, and they end up at the shore of the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh has an aha moment. He stops. 
He's just let his entire captive workforce go. And he begins to change his mind. He says, what have we done? We've just let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. And the Egyptians and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea. So obviously this massive humanity that's moving very slow and a little bit disoriented now because they were going there and now they're going there, the Egyptian army catches up to them quite quickly. And they don't Israelites don't have chariots, and chariots are at this time among the most sophisticated military weapons. And all at once, an immense sense of dread begins to wash over the Israelites. They are tired, they are harried, they are confused. They are in the middle of the desert without a safe place. And you can almost feel the ground start to tremble and shake with the hooves of horses and the wheels of chariots heading toward them. And in this passage, God says a a tricky thing that we also just heard in verse 4. God hardened their hearts. What does this mean? You know, over time when I would hear something like this, it always confused me a little bit. Isn't God supposed to be the one that makes hearts soft and pliable and open to love? Why would God harden a heart? Is God somehow a puppet master orchestrating evil? Isn't God the benevolent good, the force of grace and redemption in the world? Why would we be told that God would bend someone's heart in the opposite direction? It's an interesting phrase, and uh, scholars suggest that God is putting a fine point on the decision toward evil that the Egyptians and Pharaoh had already made. That the evil that was inside them, God was allowing them to pursue to its fullest extent. Pastor Gregory Boyd writes this. He says, God hardens people by strengthening the resolve they have already formed in their own heart. For example, six times scripture says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it also notes that Pharaoh hardened his own heart seven times before the Lord took any action. In every instance where scripture speaks of God hardening someone, it is an act of judgment in response to decisions that people already made. So we can be certain God is not the purveyor of evil, but he's allowing evil that was already there to run its course. Why? So that he may be glorified. And so that this may finally be the demise of the Egyptian pharaoh. Scripture goes on to say that the Israelites look up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, of course, cried out to God. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to the desert to die? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So everybody has cold feet right now. Pharaoh suddenly realizes he shouldn't have let his workforce go. The Egyptians are faced with the decision of either defend themselves against the Egyptian army or 
try for it and swim in the middle of the night across the Red Sea. The Israelites are stuck and everybody wants Egypt back. We have the benefit, most of us, of knowing how this story ends. I mean, this is indeed one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And folks who've never stepped foot inside of a church are perhaps familiar with Charlton Heston or Disney's Prince of Egypt. This is a known story. We're like, okay, yeah, we know. God's going to part the Red Sea. It's all going to be okay. Nobody knew this at this moment. So understandably, one of the human emotions that many of us probably have unleashed when we're upset or scared, I know I've done this, is we want to blame somebody. And so the Israelites are terrorized right now. This is not going to end well. And they look at Moses, they're like, this is your fault. We never said we wanted to leave Egypt in the first place. We should have died there. And they even twist the knife we would have loved to die in Egypt. Egypt, if any of you remember your civilization classes, uh, ancient civ classes from school, Egypt had lavish graves. They were buried with immense wealth. Some of the dead in Egypt existed in a more lavish space than the living. So twist the knife, we would rather go back to Egypt and die and be buried in the graves there. And Moses, of course, did not purposely orchestrate their death. This change in direction was not his idea, but he represents God in this moment of panic. And the people of God have lost their faith in their Lord in this moment. Sheer anger and exhaustion. They raise their fist. Really, God? Killing us slowly in Egypt wasn't good enough for you? Our modern rants against God rarely involve a trip across the Sinai Desert, but I think we can all identify with the feeling. The feeling they experienced transcends time and history. It's a feeling of unmistakable loss, and worry and grief and exhaustion, panic. Just when we thought things were gonna turn and go in our direction, now this, we're stuck at the edge of the Red Sea and we shake our fists at God. I think sometimes this happens when we face a health crisis. I mean, how many of us or people we know and love have faced a crisis and they say, well, here's the diagnosis. And you move a little bit toward the edge of the sea and then a wave after wave after wave of more bad news comes. And that diagnosis is gonna trigger this and this is gonna trigger this loss and this part of your life is never ever going to be the same again. And maybe the conclusion of medical professionals is that you're not going to live the life that you once thought that you were going to live and it goes from better or from worse to worse to worse. Or maybe in relationships. I tried to repair that. That person shunned me. And now the family system or the friendship connection is in a spiral and there's addiction involved and there's betrayal and there's divorce and there's chaos and stuff just keeps spiraling down and we shake our fists at heaven and say, really God, one of these things wasn't enough for you? Now you've brought me to this place where there's even less of an option for rescue than I had thought before, really, God? A lot of times life feels like God has led us down a wrong turn in the desert. And there's an exchange then between God and Moses. 
And God is communicating to Moses and he's telling him how to lead the people. And verse 13 says, Moses answered the people. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then God says something interesting. He says, and then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. I always wonder if God liked talking to Moses through gritted teeth. <laughs> why are you complaining to me? Tell him to move on. And I'm imagining Moses going, where are we going to go, Lord? Where are we going to go? And God says to Moses, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am Lord. God's answer to this chaos is to be still and do not fear. And this invitation repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New. God's invitation to people in a time of stress and chaos is not grab your sword, rally the troops, off we go, stick it to them before they stick it to you, fight your way out of it. That is not God's response when his people, his beloved, are in chaos. If you think ahead into the New Testament, there's that story when Peter is in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested. And Peter jumps up, rash, impulsive Peter, and in defense of Jesus, grabs a sword and whacks off the ear of a servant in the garden. And instead of praising him for that bold move, Jesus chides him. In moments of chaos and panic, God tells us, be still. I am the Lord. I have this. Throughout scripture, when angels arrive on a scene in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, we're often told that heavens open up, that light streams down, that there's an audible voice, or that people are interrupted in their dreams with the presence of the holy, which can be terrifying. And angels often bring the message, fear not. Be still, it's okay, fear not. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 41, when the Israelites are yet again in their future facing chaos, Isaiah speaks on behalf of God, and this is what he says to them. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So they have been told I will help you, but it's not quite obvious until Moses reaches out his arms how it's going to go. And while they're waiting for the word of what's going to happen to travel to the back of the multitude, while the sea is starting to open up, all they know is that they're standing at the edge of the water. If you've ever stood at the edge of a body of water, the ocean or Lake Michigan, in the middle of the night, that is an overwhelming and scary moment. 
It's the same body of water we saw during the day, but at night it feels malevolent almost. Like what creatures are lurking there in the dark and the waves are lapping at the shore and it feels foreboding. Verse 21, so then Moses stretches his hand out over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And of course, this must have been a colossal relief, but probably a curiosity and a new layer of fear as well. Because remember, leading up to this point, they gave up on God. Moses, take us back to Egypt. We're done here at the edge of the Red Sea. It would have been better if you had never brought us here. They're quite uncertain over what to make of their God in this moment. Are they going to walk in and the seas are going to crash over them? Is this truly the end of Israel? Imagine grabbing your tiny little children and your family and walking nervously through this massive wall of water on the right and the left. Was there spray from the ocean coming in? Was it loud? They trusted and they walked through. And scripture goes on to say that the Egyptians pursued them. Pharaoh's horses and chariots followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficult driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them and against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out over the sea so that the waters may flow back over over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And scripture goes on to say that Moses did this and that none of them survived. What do we do with this story? What do we do with this? Is this just a nice Bible story, good fodder for a Hollywood movie? Is this an unrealistic pat on the shoulder? It's okay. God will make all the bad people go away. Just sit and wait. How do we make sense of this story? I think most of us who live in modern American Christianity, we like a Christian faith that's filled with the good stories. And this makes sense. We worship a loving God. Scripture tells us that God wants good things for us, his children. We know that miracles are real and that they happen. And we believe, rightfully so, in the power of prayer. We know that God can intervene on behalf of those we love. We know that Jesus healed people and people today still get healed. We know that our God pursues justice We know that God will make a way out of no way. So on the one hand, we can see this story as a divine rescue, an answer to prayer, proof of the immense and immeasurable power of God, and it is that, to be clear. Yet on the other hand, how does this story explain all the times when it feels like we are about to fall back into the dark waters? How does this story explain thousands of years of human history where there was no parting of the Red Sea? 
Thousands of years of history rife with war and terror and plagues and pandemics, murder, chaos, mayhem. What does this story tell us about all of the times that maybe we personally have prayed for God to deliver us from our Red Sea moment and whatever it was we prayed for didn't happen? The people we love still passed on. The injustice we faced still happened. Does God not hear us? Does he not care about us the way he cared about the Israelites? Was there a chapter missing? Was there a 14th and a half chapter that got left out? All of us live with great fear at one moment or another. Some of you might be in a fear-filled place today. Some of you know them, you've been there. A medical diagnosis, divorce, the loss of a spouse, a best friend, injustice, depression, anxiety, war, abuse, violence, greed, whatever it is. I was actually talking with one of my kids this week who was processing a tough situation that they felt they were facing in their 15-year-old life. And they said, why is this happening to me? None of my other friends have this particular problem. And one of my responses was, well, this is your thing now. This is your little version. And I didn't say the Red Sea, but this is your version of the Red Sea. But everybody faces something. And some of us get to the Red Sea much later in life. Some people are born at the edge of the Red Sea and they spend their entire life there. Forever feeling like there's a thundering army. Forever feeling like they have no way out. Forever feeling like somebody's coming after them. There's a threat to push them into the ocean. What about you? What threatens you? What threatens to push you into the ocean? What can't you defeat no matter how hard you try? Who is coming after us in the darkness? The story is so powerful because we all, in our own way, stand at the edge of the Red Sea. And the sun never completely rises to its fullest glory in the sky, this side of heaven. The beauty of the Christian faith is that we believe that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus one day get us to the full sunlight and the full rescue. But until that time comes, we have to face the foreboding waters of the Red Sea. And we do not always get rescued the way we want. And it's interesting to note that God did not erase the Red Sea. This is not a story of complete relief from everything that burdened them. God could have taken Moses' staff and had Moses wave it like this and the sea could have disappeared and turned into desert. That would have been as miraculous and magnificent as busting the waters open. God could have done that. God chose to take them through the terror and the trauma and the chaos instead of making it vanish altogether. And there is a reason Exodus doesn't end at chapter 14. There's a lot more history and story that happens to and with the people of God. Because they make it to the other side and there's a beautiful narrative in Exodus 15. Moses and Miriam break into song and start singing with joy and celebration. But quickly after that, they look around and realize they're alone in the desert. With the exception of their Lord, 
who is with them. I always love the way Philip Yancey, a, a man of great faith, Christian author and preacher and pastor, traveled the world, um, been to dozens and dozens of countries, and he remarked on the difference he noticed between the way Americans pray and the way some people pray throughout the world. And he said, American Christianity almost inevitably always prays that God would immediately remove whatever is plaguing them. Take it away, Lord. Lord, take this thing away. And he said, overwhelmingly in most parts of the world when Christians gather to pray, they pray that God would take them through whatever they're struggling with. That there is less of illusion that God's job is to remove hardship and more of a belief and understanding that God's presence is with us in hardship, taking us through the Red Sea of our lives instead of erasing the sea altogether. My absolute favorite theologian, Walter Brueggemann, writes this. He says, when God says, fear not, fear not is the utterance of God to the people of faith. He writes, it is trust in an alternative world an alternative power, a world where God is on the throne. There is a divine action that overwhelms worldly circumstances for the sake of an alternative future. That alternative future is realized in glory. It is realized at the end of time when the fullness of Christ returns to this world. And belief in that God and in that alternative future is what gets us through the Red Sea moments that we face here on earth. So I think it is important to look back at this story with this wide angle. And the lens is the lens of God who sees us, the people he loves, and sees rescue and redemption in the person and the power of Jesus, but also sees all the ways we have to move through the Red Sea moments of our lives, and sees miracle and prayer and hope and restoration, to be sure, but also respects loss and grief and trauma and sadness and a movement of God's people together through those things not erasing them completely. God travels with us. It's one of the pivotal, pivotal takeaways of this passage. God is with the people of Israel, a pillar of cloud, a flame of fire, with Moses in the water. God is everywhere in this story. And as the nervous, scared Israelites make their way through that sea and land on the other side, God's presence and power is everywhere. If you are alone, you are still with our Lord. If you have no one who knows whatever Red Sea is brewing in your heart, God knows and God is with you and God will take you through those places. God does not remove us, but he takes us through it. And some of you are longing for a community to walk through it with you. And that is part of what the church of Jesus Christ is. That is part of why Christians collect themselves in spaces like this all over the world and have done so for thousands of years. 
Because it is in community that we come and we say prayers together and we sing songs together and we ask God to take us through that space. And even if we don't intimately know all of the people gathered in this room, we are not alone. We have our Lord and we have the community, just like the Israelites had the community of faith to take them through. Life was different on the other side, but it was not without struggle. And we will, God, Jesus says this, in this life, you will struggle. You will have worries. Take heart, he says, though, because I have overcome that. So I have you, so fear not, be still. I will be with you as you get through the struggles of this world. Michael Walzer, a theologian and um, scholar, writes this. He says, first, he says, you must realize that wherever you live in your life, you are probably in Egypt. It is very rare that people are like, I have the best life ever. You are in Egypt somewhere. Second, he says, there is a better place, a more attractive promised land, an alternative future, a Lord that loves you, who promises to be with you as you make your way through Egypt. And he says, finally, third, there is no way from here to the other side of that Red Sea except by joining together with one another and marching through it and trusting in the presence of God with us as we get through it and the remarkable, immeasurable joy of walking through whatever we face alongside brothers and sisters who also love the Lord. So be still, friends. As you stand, as we stand at the edge of whatever sea is in our life, we are not alone. And God will make a way through it. And it may not be the way we wanted. It may not be what we planned. It may not be what we hoped for. But one of the most remarkable and stunning promises of scripture is that we will never walk through those waters alone and that our God will redeem us and make all things new one day on the other side of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this story. It is not always easy to understand, Lord, why the sea exists in the first place. And we are an anxious people. We hold our fists tight. We shake them at heaven sometimes. We wonder and fret and worry together why. And Lord, your answer to us is be still and fear not. You are God and we are not. And so we trust you, Lord, to lead us through whatever waters we stand at the edge of. We're grateful for your son, for Jesus who came to save us and rescue us. And we look forward one day to your glory where there is no more need to part a sea and where we stand together at the shore of your magnificent love. Until that time, Lord, make us good friends. Make us good companions. Help us travel well together and help us trust ultimately in your love. In the name of Jesus, the church together said, amen.